Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Marina Koff, and today our focus is on music. WFUV's Patrick Rusimano dissects some pop tunes with a Fordham professor who's also a musicologist and jazz musician. But first, here's WFUV's Casey Candela reliving the unforeseen success of a Fordham professor's college days. College rock and roll bands are about as old as rock and roll itself. Americans and Brits alike are no strangers to the idea of a group of musicians jamming together in their dorm room or on the quad or performing at a dive bar or fraternity party. Many of these bands just play together for fun, but others strike gold and get a record deal instead of a job after graduation. That's right, Coldplay formed at University College London in the late 90s. Pink Floyd met at London Polytechnic. And here in the States, R.E.M. helped define college rock. They got their start at the University of Georgia. The Strokes, The Pixies, Vampire Weekend, Public Enemy, Talking Heads, and even Queen got their start in some way in college. But how long after graduation is too long for a college band to get their big break? What if years or even decades have passed? I'm Casey Candela, and this is Fordham Conversations. On today's show, we follow the story of Frank Werner and Travis Pike, who crossed paths in Boston in the 1960s to play some music together. They went on to lead independent lives and careers until the music they recorded back in the day threw them back together again. Our story begins with Dr. Frank Werner. He's now a professor of finance at Fordham University. But back in 1962, he was a shy freshman at Harvard College. I was involved in two activities, pretty much, my band and my music. I was also involved in student government. And they both come pretty much from the same genesis. Uh, as I tell people many times, I was very, very shy as, as a child. And I decided that I needed to change my persona when I got to college, as I think a lot of people do. It's a chance to, for a new beginning. And so I chose a couple of things that I liked and that would get me out there and expose me to people and force me to talk to people and perform for people. And that's what led to the two choices I made, the student government and my music. Frank wasn't interested in a career in music or government, though. When I went to Harvard, I was really good at math and science, and I wanted to major in something along those lines. I started out in physics and then decided I liked the applied side of physics more than the theoretical. And Harvard had a major called engineering and applied physics, so I transitioned to that, and that's what my degree is in as an undergraduate. But Frank's guitar playing wasn't a secret, and he ended up forming a band called Oedipus and His Mothers. It's a tongue-in-cheek reference to the Greek tragedy Oedipus Rex, where the hero tries to avoid killing his father and marrying his mother, but ends up doing it anyway. As for the name, I think at Harvard it was the style to come up with a name that was simultaneously clever and mildly obscene. And so Oedipus and his mother seemed like it fit the bill. It had wonderful literary references, and it, it allowed us, when people came up on stage, to say, are you Oedipus, to, for us to simply say, no, I'm a mother. Well, the name and the band caught on, and they were perhaps the only mothers allowed at Harvard parties. At first we were jamming, but we realized that we were pretty good, and so we started... Uh, applying to the various fraternities and houses to play at their dances. And pretty soon we were one of the popular dance bands on campus. We're a cover band. We weren't playing our own music. 
But we pretty regularly, just about every weekend, we were playing a fraternity party or what at Harvard was called a house party, since there are no fraternities. And it became my regular gig for almost the remaining two years while I was there at Harvard. At about the same time, a young guy named Travis Pike had just gotten back to the U.S. after serving with the Navy in Germany. Travis's father, James Pike, was a Boston-based movie producer whose short film Demo Derby was on the bill with the Beatles' Hard Day's Night. After the first movie's success, Pike Sr. got the idea for a rock and roll music comedy after seeing Travis perform at a local high school. And I did a few songs, and the place went wild. That movie became Feelin' Good, a musical comedy set in Boston featuring eight songs written by Travis. But he needed a backup band, so he reached out to Oedipus's lead guitarist, Dave Connors, also known as Street. Street, by the way, comes from the fact that he was from Boston, had a very broad Boston accent, and pronounced his last name Connors. And so it became Street Connors, as if two roads were meeting together. Uh, but the name stuck. Um, Street came to us one day and said, I was approached by this fellow, it was Travis Pike, who says he's making a movie and is looking for a band to back him up. And at first our reaction was, this is just a gag, it's something silly, no movies are made in Boston and so on. But Travis followed it up. He had looked apparently at other bands in the Boston area and chose us to be his backup band. And so one day we were contacted by Travis and by Travis's father, who was the producer of this movie, saying, could we come out to Travis's father's house in Newton, Massachusetts, bring our instruments and play for him to see if it would actually work? And, and it did. It, we fit very nicely. And so we became the band that backed up Travis in the movie. They got the gig, but their band name wasn't going to fly. Of course, the name Oedipus and the Mothers was a little too risque for them. And so we were asked to change the name for the movie. And uh, Terry Ney, our bass player, one day walked out of his apartment. He was married and wasn't living in the dormitories. Walked out of his apartment and noticed that the street sign in front of him read Brattle Street East. And came to us and said, I think I've got the name for the band. So that's how a couple college kids with an obscene band name were newly branded into Travis Pike and the Brattle Street East. But what about the songs themselves? The band, which was three kids from Harvard and one guy from BU, and I performed these songs on the Esplanade on the Charles River in Boston. I heard them obviously in the studio when we recorded them. I heard them when we filmed the scenes in which they were in. And we went to a premiere of the movie uh, at the Paramount Theater in Boston. I heard them on screen. But after that, I have not heard them at all. Movie history in old Bean Town. As the first widescreen cover musical ever made in that city creates all the excitement of a Hollywood premiere. It's a movie about kids today, and all the songs in the picture were written by the kids themselves. It's their scene, and this is their night. The glam and the glitz of the Boston movie premiere faded quickly. The film was not a success. And of all the reviews, one guy actually wrote what I considered to be a true review. He said the movie was really lousy. And he said the only thing good in it was me and the music. But the band still got their 15 minutes of fame, and then they went on with their lives. Frank always knew that music was just a hobby for him. I never really had the intent of becoming a professional musician. 
I didn't think I was good enough for starters. I, I think I'm decent, but I didn't think I had that extra that would be necessary to really become a professional musician. I came from a relatively conservative family, and the thought, I think, from my parents of my being on the road all the time and performing and so on was not something that they encouraged. In fact, quite the opposite. They just discouraged it. Uh, and I was doing well enough in school that I thought I would go on and continue my education, and that turned me toward business eventually. After graduating from Harvard, Frank got his Ph.D. in finance at Columbia University. In 1977, he joined Fordham's faculty at what's now called the Gabelli School of Business. One of Dr. Werner's biggest contributions to Fordham was helping to design the business core curriculum. Dr. Werner also pioneered Fordham's sustainable finance class. That focuses on what big multinational companies can do to protect the environment and promote social good. So at this point in his life, he never expected to hear the rock and roll songs he'd recorded 50 years ago because there were no DVDs or digital copies. The songs should have died with the movie Feeling Good. But that's the craziest part of this whole story. What happens next is almost biblical. A major flood and the death of the movie producer resurrected the songs and brought them out for the world to hear. Here's Travis. My father lived near the beach in Rhode Island. He had his screening room and vault flooded, and the vault is where he stored all the film. And the combination was seawater and flood water. Just messed up everything. All the film cans that were down in the dungeon under the screening room were soaked and rusting. And a few years ago, my father died. There was a settlement for the estate, and my brother Gregory went down into the vault to see what he could salvage. He said that he had found five cases of films and it sounded like he had the whole movie and we opened them and found out that indeed i had duplicates of the second half of the movie i didn't have any of the first part of it so anyway i decided that there were some songs that survived and so i posted them to youtube those two songs watch out woman and the way that i need you and they sound really pretty good State Records got wind of it, and they wanted to release a recording of it. So I let them. State Records is a small record label in England. Their motto is making records that sound like records. Mole Lambert from the record company said after hearing the songs on YouTube, he was hooked. The main side, uh, Watch Out Woman, was it quite literally blew me away. Uh, I couldn't believe the first time I heard it, the first time I saw the clip, and heard it, I was just bowled over. I just thought, this is fantastic. And it just seemed like too good a song to not have released as a, you know, on a, on a piece of vinyl. So he convinced Travis to release the songs on vinyl. It was one of those things where you kind of reach out to somebody, you know, I'd never spoken to him. I didn't know him as a person. I'd read a couple of interviews with him. He seemed like quite a switched on guy. But, you know, I had no idea if he was actually going to be amenable to the idea of doing it or if he was just going to say, oh, no, I'm not I'm not interested in those old recordings anymore. I don't want anything to do with that. But I don't know. I, I guess I proposed a, a decent enough offer that was interesting enough to him to want to... Um, kind of get behind it and to sanction the release of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that he did. Mole and his label specialize in garage rock, a modern term that refers to mid-60s style rock and roll. What I've seen in, in the last maybe two, three years is some of the best 
new releases of old material or unreleased material that never actually saw a release back in the 60s that maybe were committed to a reel-to-reel tape or an acetate or like Travis's songs they only exist on a movie soundtrack Travis took them directly from from the kind of optical part of the soundtrack and then we kind of remastered them and we prepared them for a for an actual vinyl release at, at this end in a Skype interview, I asked Mole if he thinks pressing the songs on vinyl is a way to preserve history. You know, in all honesty, I never thought about the idea of preserving history. That's a very good point. And I suppose it does. I think, you know, if you commit something to a, a physical product rather than it just being a virtual product, maybe you do commit it to history. It's hard to say now in, in this day and age how much of a difference a physical product make? I, I, I always think it means more if you have a physical version of something. But I know a lot of people don't necessarily subscribe to that idea. So maybe that does make some difference in terms of, you know, the concept of preserving history. Once they got the record deal, Travis reached out to the former members of the Brattle Street East. Needless to say, Frank was pretty excited to find out. Uh, my children knew that I had done this but they had never seen any of it because the movie closed in a week and was never seen again really uh, and they had not heard the music in fact I hadn't heard the songs that are on that record for 50 years since the movie was released I am pretty pleased with the way they came out uh, they're a little bit raw but that was the technology of the day uh, but they were they were a lot of fun this was music that was intended to be fun music this is done in 1966. It was really just before the the protest movement and the protest songs of the late 60s came out. And it was still that innocent age where rock and roll was party music, was fun music. It feels wonderful to be able to look back and think that uh, something that I did is a little part of that. So even though you won't see Watch Out Woman or The Way That I Need You on the Billboard Top 100, the records have been selling. I still have a few copies left of the pressing I don't know, maybe 50 copies left or something like that. So out of 500 copies, for me, that's quite good. Uh, It's very rare that records sell out immediately. Frank isn't going to quit his day job after all this, but he's still playing guitar at home, and he'll sometimes tell students about the curious circumstances of his rock and roll career. Special thanks to Dr. Frank Werner, professor of finance at Fordham University, Mole Lambert from State Records, and Travis Pike, who brought these songs back out into the world. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and catch up on the shows you've missed with our weekly podcast. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Casey Candela. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Marina Koff. Now, here's WFUV's Patrick Rusumano talking with Fordham professor, musicologist, and jazz musician Nate Sloan. He co-hosts the podcast Switched on Pop, where he breaks down popular music. Okay, so you've broken down songs from the most popular artists, basically, of the past... 50 years. You've, got, you've done Prince, Demi Lovato, Kendrick Lamar, Bjork, Lord, Lady Gaga. This is a very broad question, but 
What do you think makes a song great? Uh, as far as I can tell, I could I could probably, or, or rather, Patrick, I could probably give you some guidance on what makes a great song today. Because it's all about trends, I think. It's all about conforming to what is popular in the moment. And I think if we look at what's popular in the moment today, you're going to find uh, rhythms drawn from Caribbean music, dancehall rhythms, reggae rhythms, the dembo rhythm. You hear this all over music from Despacito to Shape of You. These these Caribbean rhythms are really powerful right now. Uh, I think you could probably... Uh, use a mix of acoustic and electric instruments. That seems you hear a lot of songs using this this combination right now. You know, they'll have a piano, but also uh, programmed drums. And, uh, you know, lastly, I think uh, music has a more global reach than ever. If you look at the top of our pop charts from Drake to uh, Daddy Yankee, it's it's increasingly this international sound drawing from international influences. So yeah, if I would like kind of put it in a nutshell, that's those would be the three uh, main uh, categories for crafting a great song today. So you mentioned these Caribbean rhythms. Yeah. What makes a Caribbean rhythm different from a traditional or what we would consider traditional, probably a European rhythm? Certainly, yeah. I mean, the, I suppose in the widest sense, if, if we're kind of zooming out and generalizing, you know, <laughs> centuries of, of history, uh, we could see that for the most part, the history of European Western music has not really privileged high levels of syncopation. And syncopation, just to give like a, a, a super brief definition, would be the amount that a, a rhythm or a melody deviates from the underlying pulse of a song. So um, I don't know if you think of, you know, something like uh, Baccarini's string quintet in E major. Not very syncopated. It actually kind of follows the pulse and meter of the the underlying uh, structure very closely. Then when you contrast that to uh, the the long tradition of Caribbean and Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Latino music, there's a much stronger emphasis on syncopation, on finding those ryth rhythms that sort of exist in between the, the underlying pulse of the song. So you earlier said a song doesn't need to be great to be popular. But I think it does need to be catchy to be popular. I'd agree with that. Do, do you do you know what makes a song catchy? Oh, Patrick, this is this is one of the great mysteries. Uh, we we have delved into this uh, in in our show. I mean, one thing we tried to ask on our show is: uh, are are some melodies or, or harmonies or, or forms innately catchy, or is it? Is catchiness more a product of simply being exposed to something enough times? And so we ran a little experiment to try and get to the bottom of this. Is catchiness innate or is catchiness, you know, kind of learned through repetition? We came up with an incredibly unpleasant, angular, non-catchy melody and tried to play it enough times to see if it would get caught in our head. And what we discovered that was that, yes, anything, the most unpleasant, unmusical sound can become catchy if you hear it enough. 
So in some ways, the what creates catchiness may just simply be exposure, that we are so used to these sounds after a while that they get lodged in our heads whether we like it or not. So much of the music we have on the radio is dance-oriented, and a lot of people will say, oh, you know, they want to dance because the song is groovy. What, what's, what is that? What, what about a rhythm makes people want to dance? This is another beguiling question about music. Uh, the, the notion of, of a groove is at once an incredibly powerful effect and also that one that's very hard to, to detail. Uh, I mean, some grooves are produced by the same uh, effect of syncopation that we were just talking about, uh, which causes our uh, a bodily response to kind of explore the the different uh, upbeats and downbeats of of the, the the rhythms that we're experiencing. But you know, there are certainly situations where you can find yourself grooving to something that isn't highly syncopated. That may just be a very steady pulse. I mean, I think, uh, again, I don't have a scientific answer to back this up, but it may come back to the very first sound we ever hear as humans, which is the sound of a heartbeat, our heartbeat, our, our mother's heartbeat. Uh, this maybe establishes this notion of a groove and a pulse for us from you know the, the, the very moments that we're first experiencing the sensory world. So I suppose in that way, you could say that anytime we hear a pulse in a meter, we are connected back to that primal essence. Some people are able to find the formula over and over and over again. Could you tell me a little bit about Max Martin, who is behind, I think, 22 Billboard Hot 100 hits? He, uh, he's number three behind Paul McCartney and John Lennon. That's right. Max Martin is uh, someone who I've gotten to know really well as a result of studying the, the top 40 over the last few years, because as you point out, he is everywhere from uh, Ace of Bass in the 1990s to Britney Spears in the early 2000s and today to Justin Timberlake and Ariana Grande and The Weeknd. I mean, Max Martin, who's a figure probably unknown to most people, uh, has had his hand in more pop hits than anyone, as you point out, besides the two songwriters of the Beatles. And it's a great question to, to ask, how has he been able to be so successful over the years? And uh, I think the, the person who's tried to answer that the best, the, the foremost Max Martin whisperer, if you will, would be a, a journalist who writes for The New Yorker named John Seabrook. And uh, I recommend people check out his articles in The New Yorker and his book, The Song Machine. He presents a couple interesting theories. One is that uh, Max Martin is Swedish. So it might be surprising that he's able to dominate the English-speaking charts so well. But in fact, what Seabrook suggests is that uh, Max Martin, because he is not a native English speaker, is actually able to create melodies paired with lyrics in, in ways that don't privilege the, uh, the sense of the lyrics, that is, the, the meaning being communicated to them, uh, but instead privileges p the pure sound of the melody and lyrics, what, what he calls melodic math. The, the science of matching the sound of lyrics with uh, the ideal melody notes. And the other thing I think we could point to that uh, has ensured Max Martin's longevity over the years is that 
he's very smart in always collaborating with younger producer songwriters. So I think in this way, he's able to keep his finger on the pulse of what is happening in pop music uh, by who he who he allies himself with in the studio. In your in your studies of pop music, what song came across to you as very shallow, but then had a lot lot of depth that you didn't think it had would have. Mm, that's a that's a great question. Yeah, uh, I I would say a, a a prime case for a song that uh, I I first imagined to be really shallow, as you said, and then uh, had, grew a new appreciation for it would be. Uh, something like You Belong With Me by Taylor Swift, an artist whom I rejected out of hand uh, before I had really listened to her because of biases and assumptions that I had about her based on her gender, her youth, her audience. You know, this isn't music for me. This isn't music to take seriously. And then, you know, as I listened to Taylor Swift's oeuvre, and dug deep into the musical construction of these songs, I came away with such a profound appreciation for her skill as a songwriter. I don't uh, suggest that everyone has to love her music, but I do suggest that we have to, whatever we think of her as a, as a person and figure, etc., uh, we have to respect her masterful skill at creating pop hits. It's... Uh, She's really adept at taking uh, these small melodic phrases and building the, them up into uh, climaxes, uh, taking uh, familiar lyrical tropes and casting them in new ways. I mean, yeah, that that's definitely an artist who I had a complete 180 on as I listened more and more closely. What is, what's happening with artificial intelligence in music? Um, what do people think is the future of it? What are people scared of? Right. Yeah. No, we, we, we had a, we learned a lot, uh, interviewing our, our guest, Taryn Southern, who is a songwriter who recently, uh, released an album. Uh, she wrote the lyrics, but the, all the music was composed using these new, uh, newly available AI programs. So that immediately raised a lot of questions for us. You know, certainly there's a maybe a fear there embedded in uh, this our automated future and this this notion that oh maybe musicians, uh, human musicians as we know them, will cease to exist. What we learned is that at the moment, uh, AI there doesn't seem to be any danger of artificial intelligence replacing all human composers. What artificial intelligence does is takes in a, a huge amount of musical data and then spits out simulacrums of that depending on kind of what parameters you give them. So I'd say at this point it's a tool for composers to create new sounds, but it's not necessarily a, t a tool for creating compositions whole cloth at this point. Did you always love pop music? Is that why it became a pop podcast? No, no, Patrick. I was a pop agnostic for a long time. What I've discovered as a result of doing this this show every two weeks and 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 inundating myself with pop music is that so much of the uh, the opinions we have about music are really not based in the actual sound of music, but really based in the biases and assumptions that we have about that style. It's all political. It's uh, 
it's been a really ear-opening experience to delve deep into this pop repertoire and discover that I actually really like so much of it. So you think a, you think a lot of people's musical preferences isn't based on actually what they're hearing, but their assumptions about the music and the people that make it, or the people that listen to it? I do, or or rather, uh, I should say that uh, an appreciation for music, because I, again, I don't want to suggest that as a result of listening to our podcast, say you'll come away with a, a newfound uh, love and and a, a musical addiction to say the Jonas Brothers or Taylor Swift or Demi Lovato. What I hope, though, is that you will come away with uh, an appreciation and a respect for. Uh, their craft and what their audiences get out of it because uh, we draw lines uh, around our taste for for good reason to to create identity to create community to define who we are in in relation to the world around us that's very important that's a huge part of what music does for us but uh, you can also have an incredible experience of bridging uh, into someone else's identity and someone else's group and someone else's community by listening to their music with open ears, listening empathetically, trying to understand what they get out of it. Uh, I mean, without uh, sounding, you know, Pollyanna-ish, I hope, I think uh, our country could do a lot of healing by listening. You know, I want, I want all the hip hop heads to start listening to country and I want all the country heads to start listening to hip hop. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thank you to Casey Candela and Patrick Rissimano for their interviews and to our guests, Dr. Frank Werner, Travis Pike, Moe Lambert, and Nate Sloan. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Marina Koff.